0: things as we go through the book of jeremiah is this idea this jeremiah the book is written in such a way it doesn't necessarily follow a chronology it's it's kind of a i don't want to say a hodgepodge but it's a different series of of prophecies that the lord speaks to jeremiah and then we get opportunity to get to I don't know, eavesdrop on Jeremiah's discussions with God. Remember last time, Jeremiah wasn't very happy. Jeremiah's like, Lord, why are the wicked prospering? We've heard this question asked before, why? Why do the bad people get away with things? Why do good people suffer? And Jeremiah, you know, he had, that, he had that problem with God, and, and we, we, talked, we discussed the fact there's only two possible reasons. Either one, God's not sovereign, and Jeremiah didn't believe that, or God's not good. And that's where Jeremiah had his struggle. So he was going to straighten out Jeremiah last time we were together. And, and, or Jeremiah was going to straighten out God. So, so the Lord <clears throat> spoke with him and dealt with him as we uh, picked up in chapter 12 all the way down to verse uh, 6. In verse 6, it lays out for us, For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you they have called the multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. This is a warning from God to Jeremiah. See, the people who were wanting to kill Jeremiah were guys from his own town. In fact, in this verse, he lays it out. Even your brothers, the house of your father, your own family is out to get you. Jeremiah's ministry was kind of a unique ministry. In that God called him to a nation that was in utter rebellion against him. Who had heaped up for themselves teachers that would tickle their itching ears, that would tell them the things they wanted to, to hear. You know that everything's going to be okay. That that uh, you don't really have to change anything in your life. You don't really need to worry about this this idea of repentance or confessing your sin or any of that. You know everything's good. And so they would they loved to listen to them. And along comes Jeremiah, who was a young man when he began. Right in the beginning, Jeremiah chapter one, the Lord said, do not despise your or don't let them despise your youth. Don't let them look down on you because you're young, because God says, I'm going to put my word in your mouth. You just share it. And that's what Jeremiah lived his life. Um, I have shared before. I know I told Kathy a few times and anybody else who, who wants to hear whoever teaches Anytime we teach, we get an opportunity to teach. We get an opportunity to share what God lays on our heart. We we play this battle. Sometimes it goes on in our mind while we're teaching. Sometimes it's after we teach. We have this idea: Did I do okay? Did I mess it up? Did I, you know, what should I have said? That you know, I shared this wasn't in my notes, or or you know, I totally got lost on mine, or whatever. And I I used to judge a message based on whether or not. People came forward at an altar call, or whether or not people came forward for prayer, or whether or not anybody came afterwards and said, "Wow, Jackie, you know that's really good." And it's kind of a miserable existence when you do that because when you teach three times a week, you know those things don't always happen. Sometimes people just happy they made it out alive. <laughs> Get out of here and go someplace else, you know, and. And, uh, you know, through uh, uh, a great old saint, there was a a fellow at our church, I I bet the 15 years I was at JS, he probably said three words, but he was always there. And one day he came up, had a word of encouragement for me, and, and really from that point on, my attitude has been, I just share what God lays on my heart. And it either hits you or it don't. It's not my responsibility. My job is to tell. To say, here's what God's showing me, here's what God's speaking to my heart, here's what. And for every single person, whether it's Sunday school or sharing with a friend or witnessing to somebody at work or whatever, just share what God gives you to share and don't sweat it. The Lord said, My word will accomplish what it has been sent to do. It will not return to me void or useless. It will do what it's supposed to do. Our job is to try to deliver the word. Without altering it, just give him the pure word. Here's what God says. Well, that's what Jeremiah was about. Jeremiah was sharing. The people didn't like his message. Because listen, I want you to understand it's at a time where the nation is is really excited about their future. But Jeremiah comes and says, You don't have one. They're all excited about all these alliances they've made and that they're going to be able to be delivered. From their enemies. And Jeremiah is saying you're not going to be delivered. You are going to face judgment. You will go into captivity. You're going to lose your house. You're going to lose everything. But Jeremiah. That message was not to steal hope. The message was to say so lay it down. Receive the judgment of God. And move forward. But they wouldn't receive the word that Jeremiah gave. So at this particular point, we're only in chapter 12, there's going to be a lot more death threats and attempts on Jeremiah's life. He becomes, if it's even possible, less popular than he is right now. And as he moves forward, but right now, those death threats are coming from his family, his own brothers, his own friends, the kids he grew up with. In our walk with the Lord, sooner or later, I think for every single one of us, there comes a time when we have got to make a stand for God. And when we make that stand, it's unpopular with our friends. Sometimes it's unpopular with our family. Sometimes we lose relationships over it. But it is so vital for us to make that stand. Because once you've done it one time, the next time is easier. And the next time after that is, is even easier than that. We learn, when we learn to say, no, I am going to be Counted with Jesus Christ. You see, that's that, that phrase in Romans 10, 9 and 10 that says, Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. That confess doesn't just mean I believe Jesus exists. It means with your mouth, with your life, you're confessing Jesus and what you do and who you are and what you say. That you are on his side. You're confessing that I, wherever Jesus lines up, that's where I'm at. If there's if there's an issue, I don't care what the Republicans say or what the Democrats say. I care what the Jesus say about it. And Jesus talked about it, I'm on his side. And just making that that delineation in your life. Jeremiah later on he's going to despair because we all get bummed, especially come on Jeremiah never had anybody come no, he, he didn't feel a church. He didn't, he didn't have people all over the place. Nobody ever told him he was great. Nothing ever. He, he's called the weeping prophet for crying out loud. He spends his whole entire life crying over a nation that wouldn't receive his word. Looking at the little children running down the streets. Knowing that they're going to die because their parents won't listen. So he was a frustrated guy. But he was still willing to choose. I'm on Lord's side. Wherever God is. Wherever God's directing, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to walk. And as we look at verse 7, now, Jeremiah's kind of been sharing his heart, and the Lord gives him a warning about his brothers, and not to listen to their smooth words, not to be you know, taken off track because you want to have friends. Hey, We all like friends, right? But I would rather have Jesus than my friends. I would rather have Jesus than anything else. And that's where we want to be, and that's where we need to be. But then God begins a lament. In verse 7 of Jeremiah chapter 12, God gives his lament. Listen to what he says, because it's hear it from the, the voice of a broken-hearted uh, God, broken hearted over his people. Look what he says. He, he, he mourns his lost love. I have forsaken my house. I have left my portion, my heritage. And I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. So it's not the voice of a God who's excited about dealing out punishment. This is a voice of a God who is long-suffering and waits as long as he can. But at the same time, as parents, every one of us have been in a place where we realize that the punishment that we need to inflict upon our children is for their good. As nobody likes to do it. Nobody says, yo, I want the job of whooping the kids. I'm really happy about that. Woo. I don't care what they say. Nobody. There are some probably some days. But most days, <laughs> we don't like that job. And, and the Lord here is long-suffering, but here is broken heart. I've forsaken my house. Don't lose sight. In in, in fact, let's take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. I I really want us to to be able to grasp the the depth of love that God had for the nation of Israel, that he has for the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning at verse 8, as God is divvying up the inheritance for the nation of Israel... It says in verse 8, When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. Now look at verse 9. For the Lord's portion is His people, and Jacob is the place of His inheritance. So God's people are His prize. So for the Lord, taking his, His hand of protection Off of a nation, knowing the things that they're going to go through. He's not stoked about it. He's like, it's got a broken heart, man. It's breaking God's heart to do this. And listen, I want you to understand when he says, I have given the dearly beloved of my soul, that is in the present tense. So I don't want you to forget that. It's going to be important in a minute. That means he still continuously is loving them. He loves her. He loves Israel. He loves his people. But like a parent saying to their child, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I think in God's case, it's true. When you think about the price it cost him to redeem us, the price that he paid truly hurts him more than it hurts us. And his desire for us is so intense. It's so incredible, this this furious love that God has. This desire to, to really be a part of his people's lives. But they had rejected him. And because they go to Babylon, he's going to cure them of that. He's not going to cure them of their legalism. That's going to come up. He's not going to cure them of other issues with sin. But they will not, after this time, 70 years they spent in Babylon, they will not be a people who serve all these other gods. They might not come after God with their whole heart. We can sometimes be guilty of that, right? But they are not going to fill their house with idols anymore. He's gonna, he's gonna fix that with them. I just I just hear this, this attitude of love from God as He is giving over. His dearly beloved. Now, also remember, God pictures Israel, the nation, as his wife. So imagine the heart of a husband as he turns his wife over to those who are going to waste her. Who are going to, to harm her. But he knows he has to do it. His heart's broke. Because more than anything else, he wants to protect her. Watch over her. Keep her. But like in Hosea, she would not have him. So God does not violate Israel's free will, does he? Almighty, sovereign God lets Israel go the direction they want to go. And he sends them to the capital of idolatry. It's like a dad making his son smoke the whole pack of cigarettes when he catches them smoking. He gets sick and never touches a cigarette again the rest of his life. But it's a medicine that works for Israel. In verse 8 he says, My heritage, and again when he speaks of my heritage, my portion, the, the people, Jacob, uh, Israel, my heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me. Our grumbling, our complaining, our mourning, our rebellion, our arguments is like roaring at the Lord. This is the attitude of the people as they they call out to him. They're not happy about the way things are going in their life. They're not happy about what's happening. They're not happy about having anything come between them and their wants and their desires like a spoiled child. So the Lord says they're like a lion who cries out in the forest against me. Their complaints, their rumblings, their, their, their arguings, their roaring against him. And then at the end of verse eight, he says, therefore, I have hated it. Some say, therefore, I have hated her. When we, I mean, that I hope never to be on the side of something God says he hates. I hope never to be my voice in the Lord saying, I hate when you do that. I hate when you have that attitude. I hate when that's in your heart. And I'm sure there are things in my life, I know there are things in my life that God hates. That he doesn't want. But here, somehow reading it on a the page, these complaints like a lion roaring at the Lord. And the Lord saying, I hate her. But in the Hebrew, that word hate. Is, is not a, 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 a violent emotion like we use the word hate. It is uh, an idiom for, for choosing or rejecting. Like es- or, or Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It's not a violent emotion, it's an idiom for choice. Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have rejected. In this case, he's rejecting the nation Israel. He's saying I have hated It, I've hated her, I've hated this lion, I've hated the roaring, I've hated this this people. So there's a time of rejection that's going to happen. And the nation of Israel is going to be rejected by God and go into captivity. What do we discover about these things? We discover, folks, that when we find ourselves rejected, going through hard times, going through famine, going through the dark, going through battles, going through whatever, that's when we cry out to the Lord. That's when our heart turns back to him. And don't lose sight, please, of the reality that the most important thing to God is not whether you have a nice car or enough food or that you never are hungry. The most important thing to God is that you make it home safe. That's it. So if God says in order for you to make it home, to be with me eternally. If that means you need to grow up in this place filled with wars and violence and hatred because in that place you're going to call on my name and I'll be able to deliver you into eternity, so be it. We have to learn to trust the hands of a God who loves us so much that he'll do whatever it takes to get us home. Whatever is required, whatever he needs to do. And I always, I hope I always am willing to see the, the, the different things in my life, the, the random, what seems random occurrences, or whether I, I like get a ticket this morning or I don't get a ticket this morning or I get this or that or whatever happens. All of those things, it's not, it's not this person's fault or that person's fault. Most times my fault, but, but in all of that, it's I want to see the fingerprints of God in it all. Hey, I may never get to to talk to that cop again, but I had an opportunity to bear witness to him about the love of Jesus today. And so it cost me 10 bucks. Could have been worse, right? I'd pay 10 bucks to witness to a lot of people. So, you know what I'm saying? Look for those willing to see that this isn't something that's, that's come to ruin my day. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to love. It's an opportunity for us to... To come alongside a brother. Whether they done you wrong or they didn't. Who cares. There's not one of us in this room. Who ain't done somebody wrong. At some time. And what we want to experience. Is grace and forgiveness. So what should we sow. Grace and forgiveness. Let it go. Let it go and let God do the work. That God wants to do. How he wants to move in our life. In verse 9 he says. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. Now. I love it, these kind of verses in the Bible, because this is a, a, the, the translator's worst nightmare. It's a Hebrew word, and they don't know what to do with it. I think the King James Version calls it a hyena, a speckled hyena. A but yeah, it's supposed to be, a, the best they can because it's, it is a speckled, a bird that's different from all the other birds. Why a vulture? I don't know. But, I song, yeah. <clears throat> which one? The speckled, the the gray speckled bird. No, sing it. I'll sing it to you someday. Well, now's a great time. (laughs) The gray speckled bird. But anyway, this the point is that the nation, his heritage, his portion, is different from all other peoples. Is that not true in history? Look at the Jew. Where did the Jews ever live where they were just absorbed into society? Nowhere. They never did the Lord said you are my special people my peculiar people the same term God uses toward the church that we are his special people we're not supposed to blend in with everybody else he calls us be ye separate Amen. be ye holy step out from among them be different where that's that whole stand with the lord wherever the lord is i'm gonna stand on him everybody else thinks that's weird that's dumb that's crazy so be it it's crazy i'd rather be found standing with jesus christ than found standing with anything else so he says you're a you're this speckled bird and all the other birds hate you isn't that true all the other birds hate you, so they're just they're just gonna peck you like crazy. The vultures all around are against her. Come assemble all the beasts of the field, bring them to devour. Now, listen, when we look at at prophecy, we want to understand that prophecy through the eyes of Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew. He's the one in the New Testament who really began to pen for us the truth of prophecy having what's called a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. Matthew begins to paint that picture, dual fulfillment, that these things spoke of that which was near and they occurred, but there was more that, uh, that, that we see in other ways. Now here's the way they, they describe it for you in Bible college. They describe it like this. You have the, the, the literal fulfillment. That's the near Literal fulfillment and they, they describe it to you like a like a, a um, slide projector, and you know if you, if you have a slide projector on a table and you put a card right in front of it, you can see the slide it 's small and it 's hard to read, but it 's right there right and so that 's the, the idea the literal fulfillment. it occurs at that moment the people whom the the prophet was talking about but then but then you have this screen so you, you take that away and then it shines up on a screen now on the screen it's much bigger it's easier to see the the details in regard to that so the, the next area uh, prophetically is the messianic fulfillment the messianic fulfillment that fulfillment in Christ Jesus said that these scriptures speak of him and we'll see many times in the prophecies those events those things pointing to an occurrence in the ministry or relationship of Messiah to his people, Messiah to the nation Israel, Messiah to the world, or Messiah to you and I. So there's a many times a messianic fulfillment. So you have a near, a, a literal, a messianic, and then an eschatological. Can anybody spell that? Eschatological fulfillment. Eschatological just means um, the last. Uh, eschatology is a study of the last days, the last events that will occur. So then you have that ultimate fulfillment, and each one gets bigger, and we see more detail. You guys hear what I'm saying? So when we look at it, as we look at these prophecies, we, we can begin to recognize there are those things that occurred, that occurred that moment when Babylon took the nation into captivity, but also... Isn't there a time eschatologically where we're going to see Israel standing alone with all the other birds and beasts of the field after him? Well, all you got to do to see it is turn on the news. Because the only people who used to ever side with Israel was the U.S. And now our president is calling for the lines of 1967 for them to give back half of Jerusalem, which, by the way, Israel considers their capital. You may not know this, but in Israel, whenever you have embassies from other countries that come to your country, where do they all come? They come to your capital. You know where they are in Israel? Tel Aviv. Because none of them will acknowledge Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Now, the, the President Obama has said, here's the key to peace. We must have a Palestinian state. So we need to give them back all the land that you got in the 1967 war. You need to go back to the 1967 line. That's when there was a wall in the middle of Jerusalem. You need to give them all that back. That's when the the Palestinians, Hamas, and all those guys were on the Golan Heights. And Israel was living in the valley just below the Golan Heights. So you know what they did on the Golan Heights? They set up any old crazy rocket. They didn't even have to buy a good one. It's not hard to hit the ground right at the bottom of the cliff you're standing on. So they point the rockets down there. Still today, when you go to Israel and you go to these communities, every single house has a bomb shelter. Not most. Every single house. (coughs) Now today... Israel controls the Golan Heights. So nobody's lobbing missiles anymore. So I suggest to Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, that if Obama wants to roll back those he move his family into that community. Amen. Live there. And then tell them, let's, uh, let's put the Palestinians right up there. Yeah, great idea. You're a genius. What do we see? Syria unrest iran iraq unrest iran probably some people say on the on the very brink of of being able to create for themselves nuclear weapons which is incredibly interesting in light of the prophecies in Ezekiel 38 when we talk about the Gog Magog invasion and the fact that there will be nuclear weapons used in that that god is going to turn against the people who try to use them against israel those, those things are setting up, and as he says here, you're, you're, you're a speckled bird, and you don't fit in anywhere, and no matter where you are in the world, prior to 1948, who in the world cared about Israel? Who cared about whatever, Palestine, whatever it was called? The people who lived there didn't even want it, until they gave it to Israel, and now we hate them all. We hate everybody. Oh, that's terrible, terrible, terrible. You gave them the desert and the marsh. We didn't give them something great. We gave them deserts and swamps. And Israel drained the swamps and turned it into fertile farmland. And they made the deserts bloom. And now all of a sudden, uh, man, we need to cut you in half. Well then, I say we give California back to Mexico and Texas while we're at it. It's good idea. Maybe. <laughs> it's not a bad idea, is it? <coughs> but the, it just, it's just—it's just remarkable to me. Here, the scriptures say, "Wherever His beloved is, they, nobody else likes him because they're marked with a fingerprint of God." It's kind of like the way it ought to be with a believer. Right? A believer should not fit in in the world. Shouldn't. The world shouldn't like it. Now I'm not saying because you're obnoxious. But I'm just saying that, that the Lord said. The Lord said you be careful about when, when all these other people are saying. Oh yeah. Come oh We love you. You're great. Yeah. Shouldn't be that way. Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation. They're, they hate me, they'll hate you. If they don't, something's wrong. Something's wrong. For the nation of Israel, this, this is that prophecy. In verse 10, he goes on. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. Now, we're going to see over and over again, especially when Nebuchadnezzar comes, uh, he's going to destroy Jerusalem three times. And uh, the last time, he's going to destroy it really good. The Romans are going to destroy it a couple of times. The Moabites, the Ammonites are going to come with the Babylonians. So you have a multinational conglomeration when Babylon takes Israel that are all coming against his vineyard, his vineyard being the nation of Israel. Now there's something interesting to consider as we consider his vineyard being the nation of Israel. And that's what Jesus said. In John chapter 15, I think it was, as they're passing by the temple, Jesus said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. The vineyard now is those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are in him. So we see that. As we take a look, he says, many rulers have destroyed my vineyard, and they have trodden down my portion underfoot. So keep in mind, God still considers them his. And what, they're, what people are doing to them, God cares about. They're, they're trampling my portion. They're walking over my people. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. I want you to look at this word desolate. We're going to see it like four times here. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate. Desolate it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate. And then he says, because no one takes it to heart. Literally, because no one cares. One of the, the, the sad prophecies in Ezekiel talks about the Lord looking to and fro for someone who would stand in the gap. And he found no one. No one. The scriptures are pretty uh, um, simple to understand in its declaration and our attitude toward Israel. It says to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, right? It's not a suggestion. Like if you you want to, we're supposed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's God's city. Beyond the nation of Israel, that's God's. That's his land. He's put his fingerprint on that piece of dirt. That's why... People throughout time have fought over that piece of dirt. Because you and I go look at it. Even we, we all go down to Israel and we pull up to Jerusalem. We see them tall walls. And we see all the, the Temple Mount and all the splendor. And ultimately what you come back from is it's a big rock. In the middle of other big rocks. A lot of rock. With a lot of big rocks all around that. Just like Buell. <laughs> <laughs> But more wars have been fought over that big rock than anywhere else on the planet. Why? Because God put his fingerprint. God said, I'm going to rule from the throne of David here. And so Satan puts his his armies, the the spiritual warfare that begins to take place has been taking place for at least the last 6,000 years. Well... He goes on to say in verse 12, the plunderers have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness, for the sword of the Lord will devour. Now, don't lose sight. Who is bringing the Babylonians and all these people who are going to trample? It's God, it's His hand, it's His sword. We look at the things that occur in our life and we want to blame this person did me wrong or that person said this or this person did that. Rather, we ought to say it's the sword of the Lord. It's the hand of God in my life. And I'm not gonna, I refuse to be angry at this person because of a supposed wrong I think that they did to me when I believe God is sovereign and working in my life. And so God uses him. To get my attention. So my attention needs to be with the Lord. Not my anger toward the Babylonians. And that's the mistake the nation of Israel makes. They focus all their attention on Babylon's my enemy. But the scripture tells in the book of Ephesians that we do not battle with flesh and blood. Our battle is not that way. We do not, we do not fight through, through carnal means, right? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. We're supposed to look to the Lord, submit ourselves to him, receive that correction, direction, or or whatever it is that God is is using. Sometimes he directs us. None of us like closed doors, do we? (laughs) They just closed that door on me. I don't know what they think. I have every right to have that. In fact, I will kick that door open. Just leave the door alone. They didn't close it. God did. Well, that door wouldn't have been closed if this person had did that. Really? God's still sovereign, and that door's closed. I don't know. Maybe God is trying to get our attention and move in a different direction. And not say, I need what I, this is, I want it now, this is how I want it, this is the way I want it, this is how I want it all to be put together. No, I want to report to the Lord and say, God, I'm a tool for the master's use. You want me to be a hammer? Make me a hammer. You want me to be a jar? Make me a jar. You want me to, whatever. Whatever you need. That's what I want to be. That's what our attitude needs to be and and recognizing that it's a hand of God. From one end of the land to the other end of the land, no flesh will have peace. They have sown wheat, but reap thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but do not profit. But be ashamed of your harvest, because the fierce anger of the Lord. They're going to plant, but they don't get it. They plant the wheat, they do the work for the wheat, but before the harvest can come, the other people swoop in and take it. They do all the work, the Babylonians get all the grub. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, tries to get them to stop. But even as the Lord goes through this lament, he comes to verse 14 and he radically changes what he's talking about. He radically changes his focus and immediately begins to talk about grace and restoration. Because that's the heart of our God. It's not glory in the destruction of the wicked. But that they would turn, that they would repent, that they would live. For thus says the Lord, Against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit, behold, I will pluck them out of their land. So he's going to give, uh, I think there are four promises here. We'll see if I can remember them all. There's four promises here. First one is, all those people who, who captured Israel and come, God says, I'm going to come and pluck you out of the land. I'm going to get you out of the way. Promise number one. I'm going I'm to pull these people, all these people out of the land. And then he says, and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. So he's going to separate the house of Judah the southern tribe or the nation of Israel, he's going to pluck them out. He's going to keep them separated. Then it shall be, after I have plucked them out, that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. I like that the Lord says, I will return. Because that means... He's been here before. Can't return if you've never been here before. I will return. Remember I said you have literal fulfillment near, messianic fulfillment in Christ, eschatological fulfillment at the end of days. Jesus Christ is going to return, and the nation of Israel will inherit all 300,000 square miles that they were promised in the Abrahamic covenant way back in the book of Genesis... He will sit on the throne of David and rule as their king. And all the nations of the world will come and pay homage and worship at that throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. He will return and have compassion on them and bring them back. Everyone to his heritage. Everyone to his land. But you see that's not just Israel, right? He said everyone to his heritage everyone to his land. So not only is he plucking out the enemies of Israel, but he's going to put them back in their land. He's going to put them where they belong, in their heritage, in their place, with their portion, where they're supposed to be. And then look what he says, And it shall be, if they will learn carefully the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal then they shall be established in the midst of my people. So God says, not only will I pluck them out, not only will I put them, not just Israel, but them in a a place in the land. But if they come to me and believe, then I'm going to make them, put them in the midst of my people. They'll be saved. (coughs) Here in the midst of all this judgment that God's talking about and these things, broken heartedness. Then he talks about salvation coming to all the nations. But not salvation coming to all the nations by this idea that, you know, the, the light of God shines through many different windows. And you can come to the Lord through a variety of different holy... That's not what this book... It's not what he said, is it? To swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal... So to turn away from the false gods and turn toward the Most High, Yahweh, to turn toward the Lord Almighty, the Lord God, then shall they be established in the midst of my people. But you see, that promise also has a dark side to it, right? Because he says, but if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. To me, as we look at this, Verse 14 through 17, we see, again, literal fulfillment, messianic fulfillment, but the eschatological fulfillment, the the ultimate fulfillment in the end of days, I see the judgment of the nations in Matthew chapter 25. When all those nations who who are here on planet Earth, at the end of the tribulation period, as Jesus Christ has returned, the battle of Armageddon is over... There is the judgment of the nations. That's that section of scripture that Jesus is talking about. And he says to those on his right hand or those on his left hand, inasmuch as you did it to these or didn't do it to these, the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me or you didn't do it unto me. He divides them. And one are the sheep and the other are the goats. One is accepted, the other is rejected. One enters into the kingdom age and the other doesn't. They don't enter in. For the Lord knows how to deliver the gospel from the Lord. The Lord knows. Nice I made it come alive again? I should have threw it.